now my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, um, who is Eric Dar, he's a professor of medicine, the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, who is actually going to start the morning with an update from the 23rd Conference on Retrovirus and Opportunistic Infections. Uh, Dr. Dar. Thank you, and um, good morning. It's a um, pleasure to be able to provide that CROI update for the first time to 75% of you, and perhaps a follow-up to the other 25%. As you know, <coughs> excuse me, CROI is um, probably the most important international HIV meeting of the year. There's a 1,000 presentations, more or less, at the meeting, and I have 30 minutes. So I had to pick and choose what I thought was either the most important or relevant clinically or the things that people, clinicians, might be most interested in that's on the horizon. So with that, let me go ahead and start. These are my disclosures. They're in your packet. Oh, and I also want to remember to tell you that there are CROI reviews that are published online in reviews and topics in HIV medicine. So those are available to you as well. So the presentation will talk a little bit about novel prevention strategies, list advantages associated with the switch to the newest of the approved antiretrovirals, tenofir, alafenamide, or so-called TAF, and list new treatment strategies in advanced stages of disease. So we'll touch a little bit on some new data on life expectancy, prevention treatment, uh, study on linkage and retention to care, and comorbidities. So this was a study from Kaiser. It included over 25,000 HIV-infected individuals and had a, a matched non-HIV-infected adult population of about 260,000 individuals. And it looked at overall life expectancy predicted, as these studies often do, sort of for the average 20-year-old who presents to care and is engaged in treatment. And it looks at the early era of potent antiretroviral therapy showing the mean survival or additional 36 years versus the control 62, and then more recent data from 2008 through 11 showing how that increasingly the gap is being closed and the expectation is for this young person engaged in care that they will lead a long, healthy life approaching that of the, un of the HIV uninfected control group. From a prevention perspective, there were a lot of studies presented. I'll touch on what I think were some of the highlights. Uh, there were several studies looking at toxicity associated with pre-exposure prophylaxis. I won't be showing you some of the data on renal toxicity, but it demonstrated, as we've seen in all the control trials, that while TDF is pretty safe for PrEP, there is some nephrotoxicity. And there's a very strong relationship between how often people took their PrEP and how much of an effect it had on renal function. The other area of interest with PrEP is bone mineral density, and we know from early studies that those who are HIV uninfected taking tenofovir-based PrEP, that they do experience a decline in bone mineral density of about 1%, less than what's seen in the infected population, but a consistent average of about 1%. And in the IPREX study, which was the first study that demonstrated the efficacy of PrEP in men who had sex with men, they saw this. And they also had the study end and then had this open label extension, <clears throat> excuse me, study that hopefully people have heard about. And it gave them the opportunity to see what happened to bone mineral density when people stopped 
their pre-exposure prophylaxis. And you can see, based on levels, with the higher levels presumably being the people taking the medication consistently, because as you know, this was an important confounder in all of these studies, was adherence, that you did see this decline in bone mineral density, but when stopped within 24 weeks, it returned to baseline. So at least whatever effect there is, it is transient. Uh, and since most of us think of PrEP as a way to bridge the gap from somebody who is having high-risk unprotected exposures to low-risk, um, this is reassuring. And the same thing was true in the spine. Uh, then the other studies that probably got the most attention from the meeting was this vaginal ring as a new concept for pre-exposure prophylaxis. It was a silicone ring impregnated with the pivorine, which is an NNRTI, where it rele receives, releases local and systemic levels. And women were able to replace this uh, every 30 days as they used it. And there were two large randomized control trials, the ASPIRE and the RING study, very similar study design, similar patient population. ASPIRE was one-to-one -one randomization to placebo, um, and RING was two-to-one randomization. And women reported adherence. It was self-report. They looked at blood levels. And they were also able to actually look at how much drug was present in the ring when it was returned. And from that, they could extrapolate how long it was actually in place. So they had multiple assessments of adherence. And what got so much attention from this presentation at the meeting, and one of these studies was published simultaneously in the New England Journal, was that both of them demonstrated significant efficacy and met the primary endpoint of, non of, of superiority, where those who received the depivirine ring had overall a 27% lower risk of infection in the Aspire and 31% in the ring study. So it definitely worked, and it was confirmed in two studies, but I think overall the effect was not nearly as strong as I think most of us would have hoped. The other thing that was really interesting in these two studies is that they both made the exact same observation, that there seemed to be a difference in efficacy based on age. And that in both studies, the population that were less than 21 years, there was not a significant effect. In those greater than 21 years, there was. And if you broke it down into this group, the p-value obviously was much, much lower than it was for the overall study, as was the efficacy was considerably better. And they're still trying to tease out some of the factors that drove these differences. I don't think there's any doubt some of it was related to adherence and that the younger women were somewhat less adherent. But what remains to be seen if that was entirely accounted for this difference. But we do have two studies. Both of them demonstrated efficacy for the primary endpoint. And it'll be interesting to see if this rolls out and moves forward since obviously it provides a unique option for women that they can pr protect themselves without anyone necessarily being aware. And this is just a schematic that shows the many studies for prevention that have been done, ranging from those in which adherence was so poor they were unable to show efficacy at all, to some of the more recent studies with systemic PrEP with very high levels of efficacy and adherence. And just to provide some context, here we are with Aspire and the ring study. So again, efficacy, significant, but the lower 95% confidence interval approached about one. So a quick question for you. Which of the following best applies to your use of PrEP outside of clinical research? Never used, treated five, zero to five individuals, six to 10, 11 to 20. I've treated more than 20 individuals with PrEP. Uh, I'm not a treater, so this question does not apply to me. Go ahead and vote.
Okay, so we have quite a few people who have treated PrEP. Um, probably this should have been one to five, huh? Okay. <laughs> um, if you do prescribe PrEP, and I'm assuming for most people this is in the form of tenofovir-amtricitabine, which is the approved drug, um, do you plan to use TAF-FTC, which was just approved in the last several weeks, as an alternative therapeutic? for patients living with HIV in the near future? Yes, no, or not sure? Go ahead and vote. Okay, great. So half or not sure, it's a good answer, always a good answer. And about 20% say yes. So as you probably are aware, the drug is currently not approved. If you look at the new package insert that just came out in the last couple of weeks, it specifically says that the drug should not be used as PrEP because we simply don't have data. And there's not an easy path forward to establish bioequivalence since we think for PrEP it's not just plasma levels or PBMC levels, but it may be important to know what's going on at the level of the mucosa and we don't have that data. And short of being able to define this, we would need a large randomized control trial. And I know the company is struggling to figure out how to move that forward, considering the size that study would need to be. But there were a couple of studies presented at this meeting that helped remind us how difficult this may be and how little we know about how to define what may be appropriate for PrEP with new formulations of existing drugs. So this was a study in a macaque model where they simply used TAF-FTC or placebo orally and they looked at plasma, PBMC, and tissue levels in a monkey model. And what they found was that while they did see a markedly lower level of tenofovir in the tissues, rectal tissues, uh, which raised some concerns, that it did not translate into an effect on efficacy and that these animals were indeed protected. So it illustrates that just simply looking at mucosal levels may not give us the full answer. Now, this is a monkey model. There was another study in healthy women that looked the same way. And again, I'll spare you the complicated text on this slide to simply state that when they did the study and they looked at women, they found, as expected, that when TAF, you got lower levels of plasma tenofovir than you did with TDF. You got higher levels of PBMC tenofovir than you did with TDF, just as has been seen before. But you saw considerably lower levels in tissue. And again, whether this is clinically relevant or not, we don't know, but it is a reminder that there are a lot of unanswered questions and that probably until we have more data, we need to be very careful in thinking about using TAF for pre-exposure prophylaxis. So other strategies for prevention that hold promise are long-acting systemic therapies so that people don't rely on having to take the medication on a daily basis. And there are some long-acting formulation drugs, including cabotegravir, a novel integrase inhibitor that are in development for treatment and for prevention. One of the big questions with these drugs is how acceptable will people find them and how frequently will they need to be given? So this was so-called Eclair study, which randomized low-risk men uh, with low-risk to HIV and gave them cabotegravir orally versus placebo. And then five to one randomization either continued them on cabotegravir injections every 12 weeks versus saline injections. And the primary endpoint was safety and tolerability of the long-acting preparation with a variety of secondary endpoints, including PK. And I won't show you the PK data, but what they found was that it was a little bit lower than what was predicted based on other models. 
suggesting that they may have to use this every eight weeks instead of every 12 weeks. From a tolerability perspective, they defined this by simply asking, obviously they looked at adverse events and people who discontinued and there were few discontinuations. And then they asked people, how satisfied are you with your current study medication and how satisfied would you be to continue your present form of study medication? And the red is more satisfied and orange is neutral. So on order of 80 to 90% of people felt they were either neutral or more satisfied with the possibility of using intramuscular injection, at least in this study, every 12 weeks, which would appear to be promising in moving forward in clinical trials. From a treatment perspective, um, the Gilead 1089 study uh, was an important presentation and has now since been published in HIV uh, in one of the Lancet journals. So this enrolled virologically suppressed people on TDFFTC with the third drug and randomly assigned them one-to-one -to, -one to either stay on that regimen or switch to TAF-FTC. So this was one of several studies that actually went into the approval of TAF-FTC for first-line therapy or switch. This was the switch data. And these were the results. Overall, virologic suppression was maintained in the overwhelming majority of people, as you would expect. Very few virologic failures and clearly met the non-inferiority criteria. And when they broke it down, they didn't see any differences based on age, sex, race, baseline viral load, pre-therapy, or CD4 cell count. So again, like all the other studies with TAF compared to TDF, it appears to be highly efficacious, in this case for switch. The big potential benefits are the toxicities, and you can see here that the changes in GFR, it actually went up in both groups, but it went up more significantly, although clinical relevance is unknown in those who received TAF versus TDF. And as usual, when they looked at markers of proteinuria and renal tubular protein, which are thought to be relevant factors in considering the toxicity of a drug, particularly one like tenofovir, they saw that it was more favorable and those who switched to TAF, meaning the proteinuria and renal tubular protein numbers actually declined as opposed to those who stayed on TDF. The bone mineral density is also consistent with other studies of either first-line TAF therapy or switch studies where they find that those who stay on stable regimens with TDF, their bone mineral density stays relatively flat. This has been seen now in many studies but those who switch to TAF fairly rapidly experience a significant increase in bone mineral density. Again, the clinical relevance of this is unknown, but it's certainly a favorable response to the switch. Now, thinking about the next strategies for treatment and where we're going to go from here with all of the drugs that are available, all the single tablet regimens with highly efficacious and well-tolerated, I think people have been looking at the possibility of long-acting combination therapy. And as you probably are aware, there are two major drugs moving forward in development for treatment as well as prevention. One of them is the new integrase inhibitor, cabotegravir, and the other is rilpivirine, the NNRTI, available as a nanoformulation for long-acting intramuscular dosing. And the LATTE-1 study simply tests the hypothesis that you could maintain viral suppression in a suppressed population using this novel combination of an integrase and a non-nuke. And with that showing that you could, they were able to move forward with the long-acting preparations in LATTE-2, which is essentially the phase 2b study of long-acting therapy. So what they did in this study is they took treatment-naive patients and suppressed their virus with cabotegravir oral form 
with a Bacavir 3TC, and if they were suppressed at 20 weeks, which most were, they added rilpivirine on for a month to make sure it was well-tolerated, short-acting rilpivirine, because all of these drugs moving forward will need to be short-acting first to assure that we don't give somebody a long-acting injection to a drug they don't tolerate. And then they've randomized them to either every four weeks or every eight weeks long-acting cabotegravir rilpivirine versus continuing the short-acting cabotegravir with the nucleosides. And obviously, the primary objective was safety efficacy to select the optimal dose, uh, as well as to look at PK. So this is the overall efficacy data. Again, virologic suppression was maintained across the three arms. Looks to be very similar in all groups. Very, very few virologic failures met non-inferiority criteria both four and eight weeks. And when they asked people how well they tolerated it and would they be willing to continue it, again, this is a little hard to see, but the gold or yellow actually says people said, how satisfied are you with your current treatment? More satisfied than with oral therapy for both the every four and eight week regimen. And how satisfied would you be to continue your present form? Again more satisfied in the overwhelming majority. So one of the big questions is always, will people tolerate this? And apparently they do, and they're satisfied with it, and there may be a lot of enthusiasm. So the company is moving forward with the phase three trial. The PK data looked very similar, <clears throat> but for reasons that are beyond me, apparently they're spending a lot of time analyzing this, trying to decide whether they can actually move forward with the eight-week data versus the four-week data. Hopefully it'll be every eight week, but we don't know yet. But I know there is a protocol that's been developed and circulating that's proposing to test one of these strategies in a phase three trial. So moving on from treatment naive or maintenance therapy, what about treatment experience? Uh, this is ACTG 5273. Uh, this was a study developed in um, low and middle income countries of patients who had failed first-line nuke and NRTI-based regimens. And they randomly assigned them to lopinavir-ritonavir-raltegravir or lopinavir-ritonavir with the best nukes. The overwhelming majority of people in this country did not have viral load measure. These countries did not have viral load measurements and did not have resistance data available at the time of the switch. So when we talk about nukes, we're talking about a setting in which nuke resistance is likely to be common and resistance data isn't available to assist in choosing the preferred option. And the primary endpoint was to determine whether raltegravir was non-inferior to the nukes with the boosted PI. So this is the population. I won't dwell on it. You can see the countries in which it was conducted, the baseline viral load amongst these people experiencing virologic failure, and the low CD4 count. And if you look at the time to virologic failure, the curves are virtually superimposable. And this study actually complements the data that's been previously presented from the so-called second-line study and the earnest study that had very similar designs and also showed that the boosted PI with an integrase was non-inferior to the boosted PI with nukes. They also have all shown, so this is the, the data, they also all showed that the amount of nuke resistance was not a, a predictor of failure. In fact, all of them have showed that the more nuke resistance you had at baseline, the better your chance of success. And presumably, this is because it's a marker for adherence to therapy. So these studies are very useful in now thinking about how to manage NNRTI failures. But actually, these studies provide, I think, a lot more information 
for treatment failure regimens than that because they really demonstrate that if you have a boosted PI that's fully active, you can use it with virtually anything, including recycled nukes to maintain viral suppression. And if you think about it, in the current era, the guidelines stopped recommending as a preferred option non-boosted PIs 13 years ago. And it's been almost eight or 10 years since non-boosted PIs have even been on the list of options for first-line therapy, meaning that we really should have very few people in which a boosted PI not, is not fully active that have started therapy in the last certainly eight to 10 years. So a study on linkage and retention, everybody is aware of the cascade, the big obstacle to long-term success in managing HIV treatment in, in the developed world is that more than half of our patients known to be HIV infected are really not engaged in care. So this was a very ambitious study that was funded through NIDA that was led by Lisa Metch, who presented it at Croy, looking at an extremely high-risk population and using an intensive intervention to try to see if we could improve their linkage to care. So it took people who were HIV infected, hospitalized with a detectable viral load, and who admitted to stimulant, opioid, or alcohol abuse. So this is a really challenging population. <clears throat> and it randomized them to treatment as usual, or a patient navigator, which was somebody who was skilled in working with these patients, met them in the hospital at the time of enrollment, saw them immediately upon discharge, went with them to their first primary care HIV visit, helped assist them to engage in and even get transportation to a drug and treatment center, and then met with them up to 11 times during the first six months on a regular basis to provide support and education. And the patients agreed that if at any point they did not follow up for one of these visits, that the coordinator could actually go out and look for them. So we were one of the participating sites, and our coordinators were walking the streets of Skid Row in Los Angeles looking for some of these patients to bring them into clinic. We had a patient incarcerated, and they went to her hearings every time she came up. And then when she finally got released, they put her in a cab and sent her to the study site. So this was an incredibly intensive effort. And then the third arm was that, plus we paid them for visits and taking their drugs. And they could earn up to over $1,100 for participation in the study. Now, a very challenged population, just to remind you, these are not just your average people who are not linked to care, right? So annual income, the majority less than 20,000, unstable housing in 40%, 80% have ever been in jail, food insecurity, psychological distress, very high. And I remember listening to her present the data, having sort of seen a preliminary of it, thinking if I were in the audience, I'd say, well, of course that would work, but who cares? You could never implement something like that in clinical practice. Unfortunately, it didn't work. And at 12 months, despite all the effort, during the first six months, there was really no benefit. Now, there was a small but significant benefit during those first six months. Um, so there was improved suppression at six months, Improved rate of provider and substance use disorder visits at six months, but not 12, and no difference in hospitalizations. And the primary endpoint was virologic suppression. So it was essentially a composite endpoint of all the things that have to go right to get people in care and on their drugs. So I think we learned a lot from this study. I don't think we can necessarily extrapolate to all populations from this effort. And maybe it means that we need to do this longer, or we need to come up with alternative strategies. And then briefly, some comorbidities. One of the areas of interest have been our patients who are suppressed on antiretroviral therapy who still have evidence of neurocognitive deficits. We know that 
up to about 40% of people do have neurocognitive deficits if you look hard enough for it. And there's reasonable data suggesting that these people who have neurocognitive deficits are at higher risk of progression of cognitive decline, even on suppressive therapy. And the question has been, is there anything we can do about it? And a lot of attention giving to the possibility of using drugs that penetrate the CNS better. So this was ACTG 5303, which was a treatment-naive trial that compared Maraviroc to Tenofovir with Darunavir, Ritonavir, FTC. And the primary endpoint of this study was simply they demonstrated efficacy with the novel combination and better tolerability, particularly for bone. But it was an opportunity to look at a randomized control study of a drug that's thought to penetrate well, Maraviroc, versus one that doesn't, Tenofovir. And they showed that there was indeed a, an improvement in cognitive function, particularly those who started out with abnormal function at baseline. But there was no difference between tenofovir and maraviroc. So again, this study did not demonstrate that using one drug with better, better penetration translates into better outcomes than using one with worse penetration. I will make a shameless pitch for an ACTG study that's going on that's just recently opened. HIV-infected people, virologically suppressed for more than 12 months, who have neurocognitive impairment, or HAND. So for those of you who have these people in your practice and you don't know what to do with them, which none of us do, this study will randomly assign them to either no intensification, intensification with dolutegravir, a drug that penetrates well, or dolutegravir plus Maraviroc, two drugs that penetrate well, be given once a day, are well tolerated, and to see whether for the primary endpoint we can actually improve neurocognitive function in these patients. Question for you, uh, which of the following applies to your use of HPV vaccine in HIV-infected patients over the age of 26 years? One, never use. Two, only use when patient forces the issue. Three, routinely offer to appropriate patients. Four, I have no idea why you're only asking about those more than 26 years of age. Or five, I'm not a treater, so this question doesn't apply to me. Go ahead and answer or vote. Okay, great. So. We've got quite a few people who are either patients want it or they're giving it about 40% of people. And obviously the reason I asked the question is because currently the vaccine is only approved for people up to 26 years of age. And there's very good data now in HIV-infected individuals that it's highly efficacious and in inducing an immune response. So it's approved for that group, but there's actually very little data looking at older patients with or without HIV. Um, and the concern has always been a lot of these people are already infected and is their benefit, but most aren't infected by all of the serotypes included in the vaccine. So in theory, there could still be some benefit. So this was the study design. It took individuals who were at least 27 years of age without HPV cancers, regardless of CD4 or RNA. The majority of them were virologically suppressed on antiretroviral therapy and had receptive anal intercourse, at least for the men. Um, and then they randomized them to either placebo or the standard dose of this four-valent HPV vaccine. And then they followed them over time. And the primary endpoint was time to detection of HPV at two consecutive visits, so persistent new infection by HPV, one of these serotypes, among, um, or a single positive at the last visit. 
So the follow-up was originally planned to go on for about three to four years, but it was stopped after two and a half years by the DSMB for futility. These are the baseline characteristics, notably a third already at high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions, and 60% were HPV positive for at least one of the serotypes. There were no grade three or four adverse events related to the vaccine. So at the very least, you can say that safety is not a reason to not give it. Then the question is, is there sufficient efficacy to justify, frankly, the cost? And it is an expensive vaccine. And I won't show you the data, but I will tell you, not surprisingly, it was highly immunogenic. So people would come in, 30 to 50% had antibodies already to the various different types. By the end of the study, virtually 100% of people had antibodies to each of the serotypes in the vaccine. But here was the primary data looking at persistent HPV, anal HPV infection, uh, and there was no difference. And this is why the study was ultimately stopped for futility, because there was no way, based on the study and how it was progressing, and the duration of follow-up and the number of events that they thought they would be able to demonstrate efficacy. The same thing was true looking at persistent anal HPV infection, uh, where you excluded those who just had a single positive at the last visit, and no difference in high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions at week 52 or later between the groups. So what they were able to demonstrate is that um, there was no difference in persistent infection or progression of of high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions. There was some interesting findings for oral HPV. It was one versus eight. If you didn't count the single detection at the last visit, again, very small numbers, but perhaps worth further study. Um, and no difference over time in persistent um, 16, HPV 16 persistent infection or frequency of abnormality in anal cytology. So their conclusion was safe, um, immunogenic, but no clinical benefit that was seen in this particular trial. And with that, I will stop. Thank you for your attention. And do we have time for questions? <laughs> questions about anything I presented or anything else from Croy that I might be able to try to address? Yes. I think you uh, is there is there any data on on TAF in terms of uh, penetration in, uh, th into the uh, through the blood brain barrier compared to TDF? Yeah, so um, good question. So the question is TAF in the central nervous system. Uh, that's a great question. I'm not aware of any data. We know TDF doesn't penetrate well. Um, I would assume because the systemic levels are so low with TAF that the penetration in the CNS would even be lower. But I don't know. I don't know. It's a great question. <clears throat> so um, you can, if you have questions, you can either write them on the cards and give them to the staff or come to one of the microphones. Um, I guess one of the questions that I had was in the Aspire and Ring study. Since NNRTIs are often part of the initial treatment of the newborns, um, you know, uh, delivered to mothers who are positive, um, and there were um, failures, uh, clearly. Was, was, has there been any analysis of those failures in terms of their NNRTI resistance? Yeah, great question. I'm glad, I, and I'm sorry I didn't mention it. So they did look carefully for this because it concerns that people could acquire or have viruses when they get infected that are NNRTI resistance. And 
my recollection of the data was that they found that there was no difference in the frequency of the virus that was acquired during this study being NNRTI resistant between the active treatment group and the placebo group. And from that, they concluded that most of the resistance that was identified was likely to be transmitted resistance rather than viruses that became resistant as a result of exposure to the ring drug. Okay, great. Another question about the um, Aspire and ring studies and, and the, the difference between efficacy in the younger than 21 and 21 and older. I guess the question, is there another possible explanation such as sort of uh, development of cervical tissue exposure in adolescence to other agents that may um, make them, you know, more vulnerable early on until they've had more exposure to agents and had a more robust inflammatory response yeah. or something. No, I think it's a great question, I th and I, I'm not an expert on this, and it obviously needs to be pursued. There was, no doubt, there was no doubt in the analysis that was presented for both studies that adherence was lower in the younger women, so it, it would be easy to attribute it to that. But on the other hand, you do have to think that there could be a potentially a biologic explanation why both studies would so clearly show the exact same thing uh, in a pretty tight age group. So I'm sure further studies are going to try to better define what drove those differences by age group. Um, there's a good question here about event-driven um, PrEP. I think that if it's okay, we may um, defer that uh, to uh, Susan Bookbinder's talk because um, I think that that will be dealt with as well there, unless you have some um, compelling comment at this point. I'll leave it to Susan. Okay. Um, the question is in the um, uh, intramuscular studies, was, were the drugs self-administered or administered in a clinic? Um, and um, were they intramuscular or subcutaneous? Yeah, great. Detailed question. Yeah, great question. So the drugs are going to be given intramuscular. The way it's designed in the studies, and I think it's assumed that this will continue to be the case, it needs to be given into, we didn't participate in the study, but I understand, into the gluteus medius, which apparently is, for those who give these injections, takes a lot more training. This is just a traditional intragluteal injection. And intragluteal injections are difficult to do on your own anyway, and this apparently would be almost impossible for someone to do on their own. So it's gonna have to come in and see a trained person at the clinic to give it correctly. And it is important to note that the injection volume for the every four week, so for example in the Latte 2 study, for the every four week dosing was two 2 ml injections, and for the every eight weeks is two 3 ml injections. So everybody's mouths are open, and I have to admit mine was the same way, but it was really telling to see how acceptable the patients found this in these trials. These weren't just the, you know, the, the working groups where they asked, what do you think about a long-acting preparation where everyone always says, sounds great. These were people who are actually coming in and getting injected every four or every eight weeks. And, and the overwhelming, I mean, 90 plus percent said they were satisfied and would want to move forward with the treatment. A couple questions about the um, uh, sort of intense uh, attempt to improve viral outcomes in the, one of the latter studies that you participated in. Um, and I guess the first question was, uh, again, maybe to clarify, the third arm, which had um, not only patient navigation, but some... So contingency management. Yeah. So contingency management? So people were paid when they showed up and met with the patient navigator or when they took their drugs or had a negative drug test. And they were able to make, over a six-month period of time, up to $1,100 plus dollars. Uh, to, again, further assist them in being successful with the treatment. 
Okay. So it's a huge commitment. And um, and then I guess the, one of the questions was about whether there were the, in the three arms were the racial and genders concordant in all three arms or were there differences? There's what you said, 27% were women or something. Yeah. Was it even? So my re yeah, it was pretty even. My recollection though that there that there were major differences by site. So there were 11 participating sites across the country, only one in the West Coast. But my recollection was, and I'm trying to remember if it was for better or for worse, that the Southern sites did, I think, worse, but I could be wrong. And that was the only difference, I think, was by geography. Okay. There's another uh, question about um, exposure of STDs with PrEP. I think, again, I'm going to leave that for Susan Buckbinder, if it's okay. I know that some clinics, such as Kaiser San Francisco, you sort of mandate STD screening with every uh, uh, medication refill event. Um, uh, and there, yeah. are, there are data, not only from Kaiser San Francisco, but other places. But I think I'll leave that to Susan. Yeah, and I would agree. At Croy, that was, there were several presentations on the frequency of STIs identified in people on PrEP. And there's no doubt it's very common, emphasizing the need that we do ongoing STI screening and counseling of our patients that are getting pre-exposure prophylaxis. And then there's a question on you, what are your thoughts on the current 25 milligram TAF pill with boosted regimens uh, in terms of the same, the bone and kidney function versus a 10 milligram uh, yeah. tablet? So this is a great point, and I'm sorry I didn't mention it when I presented that 1089 study. And if you looked at the print, and I should have mentioned it, the 1089 study was designed, was TDF, FTC, and a third drug. Based on the PK, those who were on a boosted PI as the third drug, because they were continuing that, got 10 milligrams of TAF. Those who were not on a boosted PI got 25. The FDA, for reasons I don't completely understand, presumably they just didn't think it was a big enough difference to justify having to have two different doses of a fixed dose combination, they decided to just move forward with the 25 milligram dose. So the TAF FTC that's now approved for the last month or so is 25 milligrams of TAF. And the concern is, in the boosted PIs, are we getting higher levels and should we be worried about this? And I frankly don't know the data that went into the FDA's decision to keep it simple. My general feeling is I probably wouldn't worry much about it since it seems to be a pretty well-tolerated drug, but it's a legitimate question. And if there's a related question, and it was about patients who are co-affected with hep C, and we all know that they're at an increased risk of renal toxicity, but there are other patient groups with other comorbidities, and again, it raises the issue of the 10 milligram tablet, mm -hmm. and again, the fixed dose combinations, and do you think there may be rules for this in the future for some of these other um, minority patient groups. Yeah, I mean, it, it's right now it's hard to imagine that we're going to yeah. get enough data from future studies to really refine this. Okay. The other important caveat for now that TAF is out there is the package insert says not for PrEP until there's more data and not for Hep B co-infection um, because there isn't yet an indication for TAF or Hep B. But as you probably are aware, the data is being presented, the FDA is reviewing it. I think there's every expectation that TAF will work for hepatitis B, and it will probably get that indication, and that caveat in the package insert will likely go away. But at least for now, it's still there. Great. So again, I want to thank Dr. Dar for really an excellent overview of an exciting conference.